This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed in the show coming up are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily, as I said, those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Okay, today uh, we're going to be focusing on police misconduct. And we're stealing the title of a program that's coming up and calling it Police Misconduct and Community Strategies for Justice. Um, and that's a program that's coming up at the Cross Cultural Center at UC Irvine later this week on Thursday. And with us are the organizers of this um, event. Um, and they're with the, it's a new group, I guess, uh, Orange County Human Rights Association. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, uh, with us is uh, David. That's right, uh, David Rodwin. Rodwin. And uh, Vivian Lee. Lee. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there will be other people joining us as we uh, continue this conversation. Uh, first of all, what is this Orange County uh, Human Rights Association and when did it start? So this is uh, a new student group um, that we've founded uh, here at UCI Law. Um, UCI it's a new student a, group, you said. Yeah, yeah. so okay. it's a it's a brand new law school. This is the this is the first year of the law school, and um, it's kind of an amazing opportunity because we get the For chance sure. to uh, found groups that we're interested in and really kind of um, set set the tone of the conversation and lay the foundations for how how we're going to have these these types of discussions. So um, I guess I founded the group um, along with Vivian here with uh, another classmate of mine, Denisha. And um, I guess we were just discussing um, our, our shared interest in, in social justice issues. And I spent some time in India, and um, I was working on human rights issues there. And I wanted to try and apply that type of international human rights framework mm. to a domestic context. So that's where the, the human rights in it comes from. And uh, we put Orange County in there, not because we want to limit ourselves to... Um, issues that are only in Orange County. Uh, like, for example, this, this particular event, um, Oscar Grant III, who was, who was murdered up in the Bay Area, um, that's certainly not in Orange County. But Orange County is a stand-in for local. So we're trying to emphasize that these issues that are around us here in Orange County, these are human rights issues too, and we need to start thinking about them that way. That's great, yeah. Uh, how many, uh, do, you, do you have membership, or is it a, a kind of ad hoc group? Or how, how does it work? So we have... We have um, our advisory committee is um, it's uh, me and Denisha co-lead the group, and then Vivian here, along with um, another student, Sam, are on the advisory uh, committee that we have. And then, in addition, we have about half of the members of our law student class, so about wow. 30 students who are members of the group, and um, they they help us arrange our events and uh, also attend the events. And then we've been really concentrating hard on making partnerships with other student groups um, across campus. So though they're not official, maybe members of the student group, um, they still work together with us on the issues that, um, you know, all of us care about. That's great. Um, later on, we can talk more about the law school. Um, but this is great that uh, Orange County needs more of uh, activist focus um, to focus uh, on action uh, related to, especially police abuse. Uh, I started a group in 1993 called AWARE, Alliance Working for Asian Rights and Empowerment. And we, um, at that time, the police were taking pictures 
of especially Asian students who were wearing baggy pants and they were calling them um, gang members. And um, some of these were actually honor students, uh, but they didn't care. They thought honor students were leaders of a gang. And so they would stop them and take their pictures for, gang, for, the, for the gang computer, mm. as we called it. And so we helped three girls that were uh, mm. photographed, two Vietnamese and one Hmong. And um, eventually the ACLU took on the case and made it a class action. And we sued the Garden Grove police. And they got a, we got a settlement. Uh, the girls sued and their parents sued. And we uh, finally got a settlement. And now one of the girls is actually had, well, last year ran for city council mm. in Garden Grove. So she was... Wow. Uh, she was trying to, you know, she would, if she was on council, she would be in a position to control the police or at least, you know, do something about police abuse. Um, but one of the right-wing bloggers in the, uh, in the county uh, found an article I wrote about this case and called the, the woman, she was a girl at the time, to come clean about her gang ties from 1990s. So they told the candidate for city council to come clean. And so that was a kind of a, kind of nasty thing. So these files and these articles about these cases go, uh, stay forever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe you could talk about, uh, uh, we joined uh, with a new guest. Uh, maybe you could introduce yourself. Sure. Hello, my name is Denisha McKenzie, and I'm also a first year at UCI Law and the co-founder of the Orange County Human Rights Association. Uh, with us is also... Uh, with us is also Keith uh, Mohammed, and uh, he's calling in from um, from uh, Bay Area. Hi, Keith. Yes, how are you? Oh, great. Yeah, we just started. So uh, we're talking about, uh, today we're going to be talking about this case in uh, the Bay Area in Oakland where um, a guy was uh, arbitrarily shot to death and caught on video uh, in the BART station. Um, how, how, why was the case moved down here to uh, Southern California? Well, the defense attorney for Johannes Mesley, the BART police officer who shot an unarmed black man, uh, Oscar Grant III, on January the 1st, he came into court and filed a motion for change of venue. His allegation was that there was too much press attention, too much political involvement, and too many protesters. And between those three things, he, con he convinced the sitting judge that there was too much weight against uh, the jury and against the trial process to allow for the trial to actually occur in the county of Alameda. We have certainly uh, been watching, and we watch very carefully, because from our vantage point, removing a trial from the county because people care is what happened in the Rodney King case. And when that trial was moved out of Los Angeles, uh, the downtown court, that's where a jury that was friendly to police officers exonerated the police officers for the beating of Rodney King. But, but L.A. is probably more diverse than where Rodney King's case ended up. Is it in L.A.? Is the, is the case in L.A.? Well, Rodney King's case started inside of Los Angeles downtown court. Right. They removed it because of political pressure and press attention and moved it in an outlining area, which generally means an area of non-black, non-Latino people who so, have suburbs, more yeah. a favorite view toward law enforcement. 
But in this so case, when I think that trial don't went you think to yeah. out of Los Angeles, it made a more favorable jury to the police officers, definitely, and seemingly demonized Rodney King. But in this case, do you don't you think the LA is much more diverse now? Well, L.A. was a better choice than the other alternative outside the county, which would have been San Diego County. <laughs> yeah, so sure. if I had to choose between Los Angeles and San Diego, I would take Los Angeles. But quite frankly, from my vantage point, the trial never should have left I mean, a county. Right. They never attempted to field a jury to determine whether or not jurors could, could assess the case fairly. Right. based on their knowledge of the case, that process never occurred. They did some sort of polling from the defense attorneys, and they came out of that polling and declared, this is our argument. For, for me, I thought the argument was weak because they had not actually attempted to interview the jurors to determine whether or not we could be fair in this county. Uh, the other people um, who locally who are organizing your uh, talk here, um, how... Um do you want to comment on on the removal of the the case from Oakland? This is Vivian Lee, and first I just want to thank uh, Brother Keith for being willing to travel down to Irvine uh, with Cephas Johnson to help us to put on this event, so that so that the local community here uh, can learn more about this case of Oscar Grant that is important not just to the people of the Bay Area but important, should be important, and is important to the people here in Irvine, as well as the state of California and the, and the United States. Um, Brother Keith has provided a, a critical leadership role in the Bay Area in organizing the community to make sure that justice, that we are moving toward justice in this case, uh, because as Brother Keith stated earlier, that this case being caught on film and put on YouTube for the entire world to see if justice cannot be brought in this case, then what hope does anybody else have? So we look forward on Thursday to welcoming um, Keith Muhammad and Cephas Johnson to the, to the Irvine campus here so that we may learn more about what is happening in the Bay Area, as well as what has been key to the success that has moved the case thus far um, and what we need to do here locally in Orange County and in Southern California to ensure that we continue to move forward on this case. Uh, definitely, I think uh, it's important for the concerned uh, folks to show up at um, court cases because otherwise it could be a kind of a slam dunk and uh, there would be no um, presence there. They could ignore us. Um, do you, I, I understand that um, will people be coming down from uh, uh, Oakland for the case? Well, yes, we've had a delegation that have traveled to every single court hearing. Wow. The next hearing will be on May 7th where the defense attorney of Johannes Mesley, Michael Raines, is literally attempting to include police officers on the jury to uh, review the case. There's a state law that actually outlaws law enforcement officers from sitting on any jury. So the man is now challenging state law, even though this is the first time in California state history that a peace officer has been charged with a homicide and while on duty. So for him to attempt to include on the jury law enforcement officers, I am certain 
that since this is the first time in California state history that a police officer has been tried, for a police officer not to know that his brother officer is on trial for murder would be like a black person not knowing that Barack Obama is president. It doesn't make any sense at all to even raise the argument, but on May 7th, that's the argument that's going to be heard by the judge. I'm not sure if it's the, really the case that it's the first time a police officer has been charged with murder. I mean, in the state know. of California history. Oh, I mean, I've, there's that, been... That, that was stated in the preliminary hearing by the judge who carried the charges, Judge Clay. Really? Who ah, that un sounds... understood very clearly that this has never happened before. And when mm. he challenged the district attorney of Alameda County on January the 7th as to whether or not he would bring mm. charges against the officer, the DA told us in that meeting where we challenged him, which can be seen on YouTube, he said that there is a special relationship wow. between law enforcement officers and district attorney's offices. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we have not charged him at this point is because police officers are given an opportunity to build up their defense. I asked him if I shot someone on videotape and you knew where I was, what my name is, where I work, and where I'm going, would you give me weeks to figure out my defense, or would you arrest me, put me in jail, and make me figure out my defense from a prison cell? And the reality is, if I or you and any of your listeners who are not police, police officers shot somebody on videotape, we'd have to figure it out from jail and bail ourselves out and work from there. So they're kind of privileged. Oh, absolutely. Police officers have what you call the Police Officers' Bill of Rights in the state of California. <laughs> which even in this case, in the BART murder of uh, Oscar Grant, recently they fired one of the officers on the platform. Her name, Yo uh, not Johannes Mezzoli, but uh, Marisol Dominici. She was the officer in charge at the time of the murder. Now, she was fired last week, but with law enforcement officers, to be fired is not really to be fired. They will fight for a year or more. She was laid off for, of work for a year with pay while they were considering the firing of her. She earned $95,000 without mm -hmm. having to work a day. And now, when it's done, her attorneys are still on the case. And there have been cases in the Oakland Police Department where officers have been fired for brutality and have come back weeks or months later, appealed the firing, and have gotten their jobs back. So we're not confident then Marisol Dominici is permanently fired, and the officer who started the incident, his name is Anthony Peroni. He's the one that was holding Oscar Grant down when Johannes Mesley shot him. Well, Anthony Peroni earned $100,000 while not working all of last year, and he is still working for BART as we speak. Brother Keith, if you wouldn't mind uh, going over some of the key facts from January 1st, 2009, the night that the incident happened, um, right before you were able to join us here, we were just about to go into some of the facts that we hadn't had a chance to yet. So for some of our audience who may not be as familiar with the case um, as we should be, could you please review some of the key facts from January 1st, please? Yeah, I would be happy to, and I'm sorry if I'm speaking ahead of the base of knowledge of some of our listeners, but on January the 1st, 2009, a young man by the name of Oscar Grant III and a delegation of his friends were riding back from New Year's celebrating in San Francisco, California. The BART train, very much like a subway system, 
had just carried he and his friends out of San Francisco into the city of Oakland. When they arrived at the Fruitvale BART station at about 1 in the morning on January the 1st, a call apparently was made of some panic from someone on the train. BART police officers responded to the platform. The first officer to arrive, his name is Officer Anthony Peroni, saw Oscar Grant and his friend standing off the train and immediately pulled his taser weapon out and began to threaten them and began to threaten them with his taser and began hurling very harsh language at them. At that moment, Oscar Grant and one of his friends, Michael Greer, got back aboard the train feeling threatened by an officer without cause. The officer then went onto the train and ordered Oscar off, and he got off. He ordered Michael Greer off, and he pulled Michael Greer off and threw him into a wall once he got him off the train. From that moment, we saw continued brutality and the potential of violence and actual violence being committed against Oscar Grant, Michael Greer, and his friends. Mr. Peroni was very proud of the way he brutalized the young men and testified to such in the courtroom in the preliminary hearings. He boasted on how he snatched one by the hair and knocked him down, in his words, with a classic hair takedown maneuver. He then attempted to excuse away his brutality of Oscar Grant by claiming that Oscar tried to kick him when, in fact, according to videotape testimony, Oscar never lifted his foot nor toe off the ground. Then, while in court, he snatched uh, Oscar's head down. Well, we saw the video on court. And when he snatched Oscar's head down, his hands went down to protect himself from falling. Anthony Peroni testified in court, see, Judge, he was trying to reach my gun. It was so shocking, the judge looked at him in essence and asked, why are you making up stuff? If you thought that he was trying to take your gun, you would have reported that at the time of the incident. Anthony Peroni, who then cast Oscar Grant down on his face and put him in the felony-prone position, he and Johannes Mesley began to attempt to uh, handcuff him. But before he threw him down, Anthony Peroni shouted Oscar in the face and called him a B-word, an A-word, and an N-word. Now, I'm trying not to cuss on your radio station, but I think these college students can figure out what those three words are. And after he cuffed Oscar with racial epithets, threw him to his face, 30 seconds later, Johannes Mesley pulled his weapon and fired and an unarmed man with his hands behind his back. And when Oscar was killed, his last words were, I can't believe he shot me. So we're here today because that incident was captured by multiple videotapes and multiple cell phone telephones. The BART authority had its own video record. There were about 30 uh, telephone and handy cameras that were aboard the train passengers. Five of those videotapes have already been entered into evidence, and the sad thing is it seems that no matter what BART police officers testify to, their testimony has been impeached almost entirely by the videos themselves. Why do you think he was shot then? He was shot out of poor training. He was shot out of hatred. He was shot out of fear. In truth, Anas Mesley has not spoken to any authority. He didn't speak to his BART officers. He didn't speak to the BART chief. He didn't speak to BART internal affairs. He has yet to have spoken in the court record. And that's 
by the preliminary hearing judge, Clay, here in Alameda County, declared that he's going to carry the charges. And as they were seeking expert testimony to talk about taser usage, he said, stop right there. We're not arguing whether or not he shot Oscar Grant. The only thing we really need to know is why. And there's no one else that can tell us why he shot Oscar Grant other than the officer himself. So his attorney can't speak that. The other witnesses could not speak it with truth. In reality, Johannes Mesley is the only one that can declare, this is why I shot Oscar Grant, and he is yet to do that. If it were an accident, I am certain that the first thing he would have told Internal Affairs was, this was an accident, I thought I was pulling out my taser gun, he would have said to Oscar Grant's beloved mother, Wanda Johnson, I'm sorry, ma'am, it was an accident. I was trying to tase him, and I accidentally pulled my service revolver. If it were an accident, he could have spoken in the court record, this is not a murder charge, this was an accident. I thought that I was pulling my taser weapon. But Johannes Mesley has chosen to stand behind his Fifth Amendment right. Johannes Mesley has chosen to stand behind his police bill of rights. And in the result is the only one who knows why he shot Oscar Grant is Johannes Mesley. Oscar Grant did not even know why he was being shot. And the reality is that if Johannes Mesley felt that this was a terrible accident, then he should have quickly, as fast as his mouth could function, to declare, look, this was an accident either. And see, the problem is his declarations have, to, through his attorney, have been conflicting. One attorney said that Johannes Mesley thought that Oscar Grant had a gun. That's how they started this case. Well, if you thought that he had a gun, then Johannes Mesley intended to pull a gun because no police officer that's trained worth any of his salt is going to pull a taser gun out if he thinks that the uh, suspect is in possession of a physical gun. If the officer thought that he had a gun, the officer would pull a gun. But if the officer did not think that he was being threatened, then he could try to say that this was a taser. But the problem, or he was attempting to pull his taser, but the problem is in the first hearing, his lawyer said that he thought that Oscar Grant was armed. Now, once that statement is made, then this officer intended to pull his gun. But then all of a sudden, stories started coming up through the testimony of other officers. And all of a sudden, we're told he thought he was pulling his taser. From my vantage point, the police officers are trying to find a way to cover of their brother officer. The attorney, uh, Michael Raines, who's the attorney for the Oakland Police Department Union, for the BART Police Officers Union and for many other police department unions, is doing his best to keep his living by working for police, by covering for them, or defending them, I should say, when they are accused of wrongdoing. Do you have any, um, I mean, is there any evidence of this guy, um, this police, uh, this BART officer's uh, past um, uh, problems with uh, treating people? Well, I think the trial starts on, on uh, June the 1st, and evidence of his past has yet to be introduced into the court record. And again, with this thing called the Police Bill of Rights, I am certain that his prior uh, employment history with BART Police is under some measures of protection. I would hope that we can find a way 
that no other officer of the law can ever again shoot somebody and their record be uh, closed to scrutiny. I think that his record should be open scrutiny because his record and his past may speak to his action in the present. Uh, you suggested he was poorly trained. How do you compare a training of a BART officer with a regular, Oakland, say, an Oakland Police Department officer? Well, first and foremost, his attorney attempted to offer a defense that Johannes Mesley was attempting to use his taser weapon. And in reality, he was in possession of a taser weapon, or BART police were in possession of taser weapons for two to three weeks before Oscar Grant was murdered. They were new to tasers. And if you watch the videotape of how the officers who had tasers in their hands handled them, they were threatening passengers with taser targeting devices. They were threatening to tase people. We have had, since Oscar was killed, other passengers of BART who have declared that they've been detained by BART police and that in that detaining they have themselves been tasered multiple times where the taser has been used as a torture device. The taser weapon is a new weapon to BART police. And at the time that Oscar was killed, they had just begun to possess them. In fact, the very taser gun that Johannes Mesley had on his person the night that he shot Oscar Grant with his service revolver was not his own. He had yet to possess his own weapon. He went and borrowed the taser weapon on their way to the New Year's Eve parties. So was he trained well on that taser? Probably not. But I would offer that I don't think that BART police are trained well in general. Yeah, that's uh, horrible. Um, do you think that generally, um, you know, they always argue with um, video evidence that the videotape doesn't show everything? Well, that is often argued, but in this instance, there's about 30 videotapes in addition to passengers aboard the train that were witnesses, in addition to Oscar Grant's friends who were sitting next to him in the moment that he was murdered. So you've got multiple witnesses. We've yet to see them all in the preliminary hearing, but I would imagine in the main trial, which begins on the 1st of June, that we'll see far more witnesses then than we've seen so far. How is the family uh, reacting to this, Oscar's family? I'm very proud of the strong faith and the measure of intelligence being demonstrated and the great courage that we see coming from Oscar's family. His mother, Wanda Johnson, has been really the anchor of the family in seeking justice for her son. His uncle, who will be coming down to Irvine with me, Cephas Johnson, has been the voice of the family, and he was thrust in the position of being family spokesman just to be a loving big brother to his sister. And so we're very proud of the way that they have functioned, but they have suffered. To see their families' names dragged in the mud, to see Oscar Grant demonized in the press as though somehow he caused himself to get shot, when to see Oscar's friends be accused of causing Oscar to be shot, all of these things are very painful. And it's one thing to witness the death of a loved one. That hurts by itself. But to witness the death of your loved one hundreds of times on videotape, it produces a pain that none of us can really claim that we know and understand. And so we, our prayers are with his family, and we do all that we can to support them in their times of need. If you could imagine even to get to the court hearings, they have not missed a day 
But to get to Los Angeles means take days off of work, spend hundreds and thousands of dollars in order to get there. This is a family that wants and deserves justice. And the reason it's important that the students at UC Irvine and other places understand what's happening is because once we tell the story, most people think that we're talking about something happening in communist China or communist Russia where law enforcement is allowed to treat people any way that they want, allegedly, and that uh, there's no defense for the common citizen. Well, this case will prove whether or not the law of the United States actually intends to, de to protect its citizens against police brutality. This is a case that is perhaps unmatched in history because not only is this the first time that a California officer has been charged, this is also the first time where the incident has been videotaped and seen hundreds of thousands of times by people all over the world. So we're hopeful that the judge will make a right judgment. We're hopeful that the DA will prosecute properly. We're hopeful that the defense attorney will stop making up stories and allow his defendant to speak the truth so that we can respond to the truth of what happened in the murder of Oscar Grant. Are you optimistic about um, the outcome? Well, I can't say I'm optimistic in the system because the system has not proven that black people should have optimism. This is the first time in state of California's history that an officer that has murdered somebody has gone to trial. Now, as a black man born and raised in South Central Los Angeles, I can tell you multiple occasions where black people have been brutalized and often killed by wayward law enforcement officers. I'm 46 years old this year, and in the 46 years of my life, this is the first time that a law enforcement officer has been made to face this kind of charge in my state. And so am I confident in the system? No. But I am confident that my God will render justice with the system or without the system. This is the chance for the state of California to do right by its people, right in the face of God, and right by the family of Oscar Grant. And I hope that the system will do the right thing. Well, we all hope so. The, um, the students here want to uh, talk about community strategies for achieving justice. Uh, what do you mean by that? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Oh, I was asking the students what they mean by uh, trying to reach uh, communities, uh, reach justice through community strategies. I think, first of all, we want to thank you, Brother Keith, for taking the time today to speak with us and for coming down on Thursday. Um, as our host, Dan Sang, was saying earlier, the title of this event on Thursday is called Police Misconduct and Community Strategies for Justice. And I think part of bringing, inviting you and Brother Cephas Johnson to come down, along with our third panelist, Jamon Hicks, who is a practicing attorney in Los Angeles with the Cochran Firm, is that what is happening in the Bay Area, and as you spoke to earlier, Brother Keith, the fact that the trial is moving down here, it connects the communities both in the Bay Area as well as down here. And I think one of the things that we would like to explore on Thursday at this event is in addition to the background information and what 
and providing us with an update of the case thus far, what are some of the things that this point moving forward the community should be aware of and the community should take action on so that we are able to impact impact the system in a sustainable way? Well, one of the things that I think that the students and the community there in Southern California should recognize is I don't believe that there would have been charges brought against Johannes Mesley were it not for the organized and united efforts of the people of the community. We held a meeting with the district attorney on January the 7th before the funeral of Oscar Grant, and that meeting included elected officials, included clergy leadership, included student leadership, included community activists, and it was the joint effort of this organized body of concerned citizens that helped the DA to recognize the necessity not only of bringing charges, but by sharing with the community what his intentions were. Mandelum's called a press conference and invited the DA to participate. And in that press conference, the DA announced for the first time that it was intention to seek arrest charges against Johannes Mesley. What everyone should recognize is every change that has occurred, BART is now uh, looking at legislation in the state legislature to produce a civilian oversight procedure. It's going before the legislative Senate very soon. That would not exist were it not for the intimate involvement of community activists, concerned citizens, students, clergy leaders, elected officials, and the many persons who are concerned that not only do we want justice in the murder of Oscar Grant, but we want to make sure that this kind of thing never happens again. And if anything near it happens again, that there's a process in place to protect the citizens from the wayward activity of those officers that go astray. You know, on, on this campus, the it seems the ante has been raised, uh, the... Um the rhetoric's been raised, but also the police have been very active in arresting students for speaking out and for protesting and for doing sit-ins. And Angela Davis was on campus uh, a few weeks ago uh, several times, and the last time she was uh, speaking in public, she mentioned that it seemed better It seemed better in 1970 when she was a graduate student at UC San Diego where she had... Um, you know, they had renamed the building called the Mumba House and um, and some other name, and um, and they took over buildings and stuff, and they never got arrested. And yet, uh, UC Irvine police have been arresting uh, seven, uh, eleven, Irvine eleven, the people that spoke out against the uh, Israeli ambassador, and then uh, and then seventeen seventeen other students uh, later. The next The, the next week, and uh, who were speaking out against the uh, the uh, the uh, who were sitting in at the chancellor's uh, hallway in the hallway outside his her office his office. So uh, I think I think uh, maybe the uh, do you think that uh, maybe all of you could talk about this? Uh, what do you think is happening here? Do you see that the University is just trying to show the public that there's uh, certain elements of the public that they're hard-nosed and can crack down. Why are they taking such a 
hotline. And actually, in fact, uh, even though the people have been arrested, the DA has not brought charges yet. Uh, I know with John Booning's case, uh, who was a graduate student in sociology last fall, he was arrested and they never brought charges against him. The DA actually never pressed charges. I think um, you're right that uh, the police are trying to, to send a message. And I think, um, I mean, it's, it's clear that, that the the issue where the 11 students were arrested at um, Ambassador Orange's speech, I mean, that it was a very politically charged atmosphere. And um, regardless of uh, whether or not one agrees with the with the tactics of the students who um, who spoke out <coughs> and uh, interrupted Ambassador Oren's speech, I mean, it remains to be seen whether or not it was, a, it was an appropriate or effective uh, measure to, to arrest them. Um, but like you said, they, they haven't been charged uh, with anything yet. And um, I think, you know, on the flip side, I have to say that um, it is important here uh, in an academic environment to maintain um, an appropriate tone and an atmosphere of um, free speech. So, I mean, free speech doesn't just mean, you know, they, they say you can't, you can't stand up and yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, I think the same, the same goes for uh, when you invite someone to come make a speech at a university. Um, it, it's not free speech necessarily to stand up and interrupt that repeatedly. But that being said, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's an appropriate thing to arrest them. Um, I can't say I've, I've uh, personally felt... Um, you know, threatened by any police officers. We've, we've held a number of events and haven't encountered, um, you know, any problems. We haven't done sit-ins, but we've done a number of, you know, social action-oriented events. So, um, you know, it may just be the, the particular political, um, you know, atmosphere of that particular issue. Uh, Keith, do you have to uh, head off? Uh, I think we've, we may have lost him at this point. Keith, are you there? Um, okay. Yes, I'm still uh, here. We, she may have, he may have already left. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think the on the issue of the Irvine 11, um, we've had uh, the talk, we've aired the talk of Irwin Chemerinsky, the dean of the law school, uh, who argues that it was there was a, a you know there's this thing uh, that that they were engaging in the he claims that they were engaging in a heckless veto. Um, the uh, National Lawyers Guild is actually defending the 11 and. Uh, um, Lafferty, uh, who heads the uh, Mike Lafferty, uh, he uh, what's his first name? He uh, he has a radio show on KPFK. Anyway, he uh, he's head of the local uh, LA chapter, and he argues that uh, Ambassador Alwyn was able to finish his talk. Uh, so he claims that there was no veto because he was able, even though he was interrupted eleven times. Uh, one can argue whether that is a you know appropriate tactic, or whether the tactic backfired. But I think we. Uh, my point is just that uh, the university didn't need, didn't have to arrest people. Yeah, and and, and just uh, finishing up um, our discussion on the Oscar Grant case, um, I'd like to th to thank uh, Keith Muhammad again if he's listening for joining us today, um, and for for joining us on Thursday. He's he's agreed to um, to come down to Irvine along with Oscar Grant's uncle Cephas Johnson <laughs> and um, uh, police misconduct attorney Jamon Hicks, who uh, who works uh, out of L.A. The event that we're organizing is going to be held at the Cross Cultural Center here on the UC Irvine campus in the Dr. White Conference Room, and it's going to take place uh, from 5 to 
and we'll just have a, a light reception afterwards. And we're, we would really like to be it to be a forum for um, community activists and people who are interested in learning about, um, you know, not only this this one uh, particularly awful case of police misconduct, but uh, you know th this issue in general and how communities can effectively respond to make sure that uh, you know the pressure is kept up on uh, those with their their hands on the levers of power um, and we make sure that you know these types of of issues um, you know charges are pressed when this happens and um, you know the the heat is kept up on uh, those that uh, you know the heat has to be kept up on is uh is this your first event no uh, we've had no. um we've had a number of events so far uh, our first event was uh last semester and uh, uh dean erwin chemerinsky uh, who's, who's really a, a remarkable civil rights activist in his own right, he spoke on um, sentencing and three strikes mm. laws. Oh. And, um, you know, in addition to the, the racial disparities and, and how those laws are, um, you know, applied to different people, he spoke about just the real injustice of three strikes laws being applied to people who haven't committed a violent crime in their life. Um, they've maybe, he, he gave the example, he defended uh, one individual who stole, I think it was roughly $200 in DVDs from Walmart. And because that was his, his, third, um, his third crime that he was convicted of, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He doesn't even have the, po the possibility of parole waiting for him. This is a guy with children. Um, he was you know, in his mid-30s when he was convicted, and he now faces you know, the rest of his life in prison. So that was our first event. We then, uh, at the beginning of, of, we're on a semester system. I know UCI is on a quarter system. Oh, right. But at the yeah. beginning of our semester, um, this was in January, we had our first open event for um, people outside of, you know, there's just a law school. And this was on immigrants' rights. Mm. And we invited um, two professors at UCI, uh, Professor Stephen Lee and um, Professor Jennifer Chacon. And they spoke um, to, to, you know, law students and to uh, lots of people who, who, who just came about um, you know the problems that with the immigration system today and possibilities of change now that we have uh, Obama in the White House and what that change might look like. And then uh, last month in February we had an event um, called Homeless in Los Angeles in which we talked about the issue of homelessness um, particularly as I was mentioning before as a local human rights issue. I mean we all, we all see homeless people you know maybe even every day and they just become part of the background, but really this is, this is a major human rights issue just, you know, in our backyard. So um, my, my colleague here in the law school, Denisha, she, um, she invited uh, someone she knew who um, had, had recently completed a documentary on his experience being homeless in Los Angeles. And he came, he introduced the documentary, we screened it, and then um, we also had two uh, attorneys from the Public Counsel uh, Law Center in Los Angeles. That's the country's uh, largest pro bono law firm. And the director of uh, litigation of Public Counsel came and spoke about, um, about homelessness and uh, his experiences uh, working in the Homelessness Prevention Law Project at Public Counsel. And then um, this, is, this will be our, our final event of the semester, this uh, Police Misconduct and Community Strategies for Justice event. We'd really like to, it to be, um, you know, successful. We'd like uh, everyone to come out. Again, it's at the Cross-Cultural Center in the Dr. White Conference Room here at UCI. And uh, it's 5 to 6.30 just this Thursday. Yeah, that's...
was this what attracted you, all of you, all three of you, to the law school? The fact that it's um, kind of public interest law and trying to get people involved. Um, definitely. Um, I know that when I decided to go to law school, I wanted to make sure that no matter what area of law that I practice, that people that what I did really focused on social justice issues because, like Brother Keith, I'm also born and raised from South Central Los Angeles, so I've seen and lived through many of the experiences that people like Oscar Grant and many other, you know, people from minority backgrounds within this country face. So it was really important for me to go to a place where these issues would be addressed and where people would be interested in learning about it and ultimately fixing the problem. So when Dave and I decided to to start this group at UC Irvine, it was really our goal to make sure that people were really aware of what's going on so that eventually we as legal advocates could help change things that were going on in the community. And um, I guess none of you want to be uh, uh, prosecutors, right? Well, <laughs> not necessarily, but at the same time, we, we, we want to, to make sure that the system is corrected because injustices like this should not be happening. So if we have people who are oriented towards, you know, being sensitive to social justice issues in the prosecution's office, then that may be a way to, to mitigate these things from happening in the future. So um, yeah. I don't think really any of us want to be prosecutors. But <laughs> <laughs> I would encourage our classmates who do become prosecutors to, to remember what they learned from okra in, in doing that work and to try to be fair and just in, in whatever decisions that they make. And, um, you know, my heart really goes out to Oscar Grant's mother and his family as well because I personally have been affected by issues of police misconduct. Just sure. just last year, my sister, who is a 21-year-old girl going to Columbia University, straight-A student, she was actually harassed and assaulted by New York police department officers and wrongfully arrested and you know currently she is filing suit against them so this is something that happens not only in california not only in the bay area but all across this country and thank god my sister wasn't hurt but to to listen on the phone as she walked away from that police department office being humiliated and you know feeling like you know she did nothing wrong but yeah. because of the color of her skin she was harassed yeah. and 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 humiliated like i said it it's not right and you know oscar grant his situation is going to speak to to this movement where where things need to change and this shouldn't be happening whether it's a minor assault or where unfortunately someone is killed so like um dave said we really hope that people could come out and learn about this issue no matter what your political beliefs are because this is a a human rights violation as you know um, our our group's mission is is focused on and we all need to participate no matter who you are in making sure that this doesn't happen to anyone yeah just uh, three years ago I was uh, near the Orange County Airport and at 11 o'clock at night or so and 11.30 and dropping off a student and then riding back with uh, another Asian student uh, Asian student and um, the white cop pulls me over and asks me what I do at UCI, why I'm going there. Asked me all sorts of questions. There was no, um, you know, he didn't say anything about anything about my car, whether I was driving, you know, too fast without lights or whatever. 
And then all of a sudden he just disappeared when I reached for my um, registration information. He maybe got another call on his, or figured out that I wasn't the guy he wanted. And he just asked all these inappropriate questions. And uh, even the student region uh, was pulled over on walking home at, uh, late at night by an Irvine cop. And so it just seems like uh, sometimes these are kind of arbitrary. And because you're people, a person of color, you seem to think, you, you, you jump to the conclusion, of course, that it was because of your race. Uh, so it's easy to feel that, even though Asians are now, a lot of Asians on campus. Uh, so why would they be pulling over Asians? It doesn't make any sense. Um, because then they would have to pull over lots of the, uh, the majority of the population uh, at Irvine. Uh, that reminds me, Dan, um, I just read an article last week about um, there was a police chief in a, a St. Louis, Missouri suburb, just outside of St. Louis, who um, just resigned from his job because the mayor of St. Louis had instructed him to pull over all of, quote, those people that come into this uh, majority white suburb um, whenever possible make them come out of the car, handcuff them, you know, even when there was, you know, no cause at all, just to send a message that they weren't wanted there. This police chief refused to do, to do that. And um, in response, the, the, uh, the mayor asked for his resignation, and he, and he did resign. And now this has just come, come public. But hmm. I was talking about this case uh, with Denisha, and she mentioned that, you know, it's almost good. We don't normally hear about cases like this where people just come right out and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's an official instruction to the chief of police to uh -huh. go over and pull over as many black people as possible and make them feel unwanted. Uh -huh. you, don't, you don't, I mean, in, t in today's society, you know, racism just doesn't demonstrate itself like that. People, there are understandings that people have, um, and people, you know, say things, and they don't communicate it that directly. Yeah. But here is a case where we have a mayor directly communicating that he wants to racially profile and send a message that black people aren't welcome in his community. So, you know, we have a case like, like this happening in a St. Louis suburb. We've got this um, Oscar Grant case coming out where the, uh, Keith Mahabin mentioned this. The minute, you know, the second before um, the police officer who shot Oscar Grant pulled the trigger, he yelled out a racial epithet just before he pulled the trigger. So you get these cases where, you know, the real kind of the sentiment underlying mm -hmm. just you know just below the surface comes out. comes out and when you have people arguing that you know now with Barack Obama president we are a, we're a post-racial society mm. race doesn't matter anymore it's sometimes good when you get a few cases like this mm -hmm. to force people to I mean not not good you know at all that it happened I mean just that it forces people Recognize. to confront yeah um, you know race and society in a way that we tend to try and ignore so uh, we'd like to use this opportunity um, you know, to discuss these issues and to, and to really bring this issue to the fore and discuss it openly so that we can figure out ways to, um, to, com to combat it. Yeah, one of the girls I helped uh, in 93, he was actually, she was actually told in another incident that uh, the police officer in, from Garden Grove told her not to come to my city, told her to get out of her city, his, his city, and she, she was very um, vocal. She's now a lawyer, and she uh, says... Uh, this is not your city. This is my. This I'm an American. I can go wherever I want. So that was captured on CBS uh, Eye on America. We they did a show on us, and uh, so so that was really good. That uh, that that kind of uh, confrontation uh, backfired actually, and it spurred this uh, kid, you know, 14 year old kid, at uh, at um, Century High to go uh, 
go on to law school. And, um, you know, so I think uh, these kind of actions do spark some people. I think it sometimes takes something like this, some kind of uh, encounter to really make you realize that things aren't right. Um, otherwise, because you're going to, a, you know, a new law school, you could just live comfortably and just do your law studies and not get involved uh, and breeze through school, maybe. And <laughs> and uh, I know it's really tough. The first year is really the toughest. Huh? And uh, But do you feel that um, the uh, school is welcoming of this type of activity? Yes, I think that um, we're very fortunate at UCI Law um, in the caliber of our faculty, in the culture and the vision that the dean has set forth, um, that organizations like OKRA are able to be formed and to be active on, on campus and to have the support of the dean and his office and the administration. So I think one of the benefits of going to new law school like UCI is that um, not only are we permitted to engage in activities like this, but we're encouraged to, mm -hmm. and to really make this law school be a place, um, be a place for us. Do you find um, opposition from other students or not? Not at all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, ev everyone, regardless of their political beliefs, can understand, um, you know, that, that when, when something like this, I mean, this, this particular case, police misconduct, I mean, you just know on a, on a gut level there's mm -hmm. something wrong here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I mean, you know, overall it probably is a liberal class, but there certainly are conservatives. And um, we want, as one of our activities through um, Orange County Human Rights Association, OCRA, uh, we, we go and tutor um, uh, children who are, th their, their families are homeless. They've been uh, temporarily located at the, the Costa Mesa Motor Inn through the Illumination Foundation, which is a local nonprofit. And, um, you know, the students who come and uh who come with us and go tutor there it's it's across the board it's you know it doesn't it doesn't matter what their political beliefs are it doesn't matter where they come from um you know everyone can understand that uh you know these these issues transcend political ideology and um people have been really supportive and uh you know they come out to the events and they uh they're happy to to, to participate do you get uh, cost credit for any of this I wish that we did because it <laughs> takes so much time to organize these events, but I think the reward just comes from the, the fact and knowing that hopefully we are educating people and bringing these issues out here. So, no, we don't get credit. If the administration would like to consider it, that would be great. If they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's just all from the heart, and every single person who is involved with OCRA genuinely has a passion for social justice issues and seeing change and I think that's what keeps us motivated despite all the stresses that come along with the first year of law school. I'm really encouraged by what you're doing because uh, UCI has this kind of elitist uh, reputation that we don't want to talk to other people, we don't get involved with Cal States, we are like, you know, we compare ourselves to, you know, other, you know, kind of rank, highly ranked schools. And um, there's, you know, I know there are exceptions. I know sociology has actually, uh, the reason I found out about some of the current situation, I went back with this girl to Century High uh, as part of a sociology uh, program 
where they go into schools and teach kids there, uh, help kids during the school day, and I was able to go in and talk about police abuse. But uh, surprisingly, nobody was stopped uh, in the 15 years since. Uh, this was maybe five years ago, before she went to law school. There was, uh, there was no, I mean, people said they don't, they aren't hassled by the police in, in the same way that they were taking pictures before. And I think because it's because probably they, um, they have yearbooks now. <laughs> school students have yearbooks, and the police keep copies. I'm sure they they have police officers in every school. They know the kids, and also now there's Facebook, of course, so you can get all the pictures you want. And I think that really speaks to the power of educating people about what's going on in the communities. You're less likely to see these events happening when police officers are aware that people understand what's going on and really will take a stance against it, which is probably what happened in that case where people weren't harassed as, as much anymore. So that's a great thing. Yeah, I just wish there would be more uh, movement towards uh, setting up police civilian boards, uh, review boards in each uh, locality, um, because it's it seems right now there are the sheriffs, for instance, uh, Orange County Sheriff has an advisory board or at least the previous sheriff who went you know, went down. But he, before that, he had uh, corona, and he had uh, uh, ethnically diverse with lots of uh, people of color on this board to advise him and to go into jails when they wanted, and they could go in and visit. And, you know, it was his way of s trying to find out what was going on in the community, I'm sure. Uh, but these the, the people there were oblivious to his uh, crimes, obviously. Uh, and so it's, I think we need something different. We need something that is independent, that can over, have oversight of the police practices and continue to monitor it and uh, serve as a check on abuses. Because when you go into this, this whole thing, the reason is they're basically they're supporting each other. And that's why maybe no, that's maybe that's the reason why there aren't any cases that go into trial most of the time they get dropped. Um, so it is a really hard struggle to try to get somebody convicted of police misconduct. So I really applaud you guys, for uh, you, all of you, for uh, going ahead with this campaign. Um, and um, this event uh, is uh, on Thursday at 5 o'clock at the Cross Cultural Center, which is on the UC Irvine campus. And uh, and it's uh, we'll bring uh, Ankoa from the Grant family down from Oakland, together with brother um, Keith Mohammed, uh, who's a community activist up in Oakland, and he heads uh, actually a school, right? He's executive director of a school up there, um, and so um, this is your one or person uh, our chance to find out more about this case uh, beyond what you've heard on this show. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. For coming on this. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> this is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the case on, on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. And we earlier had Keith um, Mohammed on, and uh, with us, uh, UCI law students, Denisha McKenzie, David Rodwin, and Vivian Lee. Thank you. Thank you for joining Dan. us.